You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. A few years ago, my wife and I went over to Auto Row to buy our first car. We're in the Subaru dealership on Broadway, and we notice that there are pictures of Bruce Lee all over the place. Movie posters, framed photos, newspaper clippings. I asked the sales guy, so are you guys really big kung fu fans here? He's like, check this out. This building used to be Bruce Lee's studio. And one of the most legendary fights of all time happened right here. What? I mean, everybody's a Bruce Lee fan, right? I'm pretty sure that's why we ended up deciding to buy the car there. But anyway, the salesman goes, Yeah, back in the 60s, it was forbidden for kung fu masters to train people who weren't Chinese. But Bruce Lee wasn't having it. He was training black people, white people, whoever, and he told the old masters, if you want me to stop training non-Chinese, come over to Oakland and make me. So they sent over their best guy, a dude named Wong Jackman. Bruce ended up winning, and bam, that's when non-Chinese people started learning Kung Fu. Pretty crazy story, right? Well, there are a bunch of things about it that aren't exactly accurate. Look, I talked to a lot of people for this book, Everyone that I talk to has an opinion on the Wong Jackman-Bruce Lee fight. I mean, I heard some stories, I, I mean, just wild out there stuff. That's the voice of Charles Russo. He just came out with a book called Striking Distance, Bruce Lee and the Dawn of Martial Arts in America. Here's some of the things he heard when he was researching this fight. Like Bruce Lee putting Wong Jackman's head through a wall, and it was so loud that the neighbors called the cops. Um, you know, Wong Jackman having Bruce Lee in a headlock and was about to knock him out when the cops busted through the front door. But what I noticed was that when you really looked at who the people were in the room, and, and I identified them down to an individual, when you look at their accounts, I, I think they match up pretty well. This is why I wanted to talk to Charles. Because with so many Bruce Lee stories, it's hard to separate reality from legend. When I mentioned to somebody who grew up in Oakland that I was doing a Bruce Lee episode, he was like, yeah, I took kung fu classes in the 80s and every teacher in Oakland said that they trained with Bruce Lee. And of course, that's a pretty innocuous example of the kinds of myths that surround Bruce Lee. But for this book, Charles really did his homework. Not that it'll change everybody's minds. It's widely regarded as probably the most well-known fight in modern martial arts history. I mean, people still talk about this around the world. There are huge threads and chat rooms dedicated to this kind of thing. Uh, Hollywood has rendered it now in very poor form twice. Even though Bruce Lee's studio on Broadway was only open for two years, the legend of this fight still draws people here from all over the world. Here's Robbie Dempster, the Subaru dealership sales manager. 
We have a lot of people coming over here. They want to come take pictures, and they're blown away by it. We've had some Italians, um, some a couple Germans, had some Russian folks, some Mongolian folks. So it's a very spread. It's not just one you know ethnic group or uh, from one country. They're coming from all over. So Bruce Lee has a mass appeal. Here's the funny thing: the dealership building itself isn't even where Bruce's studio is located. It was next door. But that's just a parking lot now. So the dealership, with all its Bruce Lee memorabilia, is the closest thing Oakland has to a shrine. Which is kind of sad, because the Oakland years were some of the most important in Bruce's life. That era changed Bruce Lee, and the people he was working with here, profoundly. And what they did changed the world. Bruce Lee is best known as a movie star, but he's also widely acknowledged as the godfather of MMA, mixed martial arts, one of the most popular sports in the world. There, there is no doubt that, that um, what, whatever contributions Bruce had to MMA originated out of Oakland um, as a result of his experiences here. That's the voice of Gary Kaganen, an Oakland native who trained at one of Bruce's schools. We're going to be hearing from him this episode, too. Because while Charles Russo researched the history of martial arts in the Bay Area, Gary actually lived it. So get ready, because this episode isn't just about that one epic fight. It's about taking an honest look at Bruce Lee's time in the East Bay. And the facts are just as interesting as the folklore. I'm Liam O'Donohue, and you're listening to East Bay Yesterday. Stay tuned. You look at other cultural icons of his era, say someone like James Dean. James Dean had screen presence, sure, and represented like a certain uh, spirit of the era. And with Bruce Lee, like that's just one small facet of why he is resonating with people today. Here we are almost a half century after he passed and he almost seems as popular as ever. You know, you put your radar out for him and you see him pop up or reference everywhere. Again, that's Charles Russo, who wrote the book about Bruce Lee's time in Oakland. And he's right about the popularity thing. Bruce Lee is one of those few global icons, like Bob Marley, whose face you could imagine seeing on a poster in any country in the world. Gary Kaganen, the Oakland native who trained at one of Bruce's schools, He's got a good reason for why Bruce is so popular. Gary, who is Filipino-American, picked up martial arts after getting assaulted in junior high. When a guy like Bruce comes around and he gives an entire generation of, uh, and an entire culture of people, uh, an entire ethnicity of people, uh, a newfound sense of pride um, and, and uh, as a result, confidence um, that, yeah, um, people started to realize that, hey, if I learn this stuff, you know, I don't have to be afraid and I don't have to be bullied. Bruce Lee got famous at a time when there were very, very few positive depictions of Asian men or any people of color, really, in the media. Shit, Asian men are still battling a lot of the same stereotypes that 
Bruce Lee shattered, and he's been dead for more than four decades. So I get the cultural pride thing. But Bruce Lee isn't just an icon for Asian or Asian American people. White, black, Latino, people everywhere love this guy. It's not just martial arts fans either. I had a Bruce Lee poster in my college dorm, and I never took a kung fu class in my life. So what is it about him that resonates across cultures? I've got some theories, but before we get all philosophical, let's take a step back to a time before Bruce Lee kicked off the kung fu craze. When you first find the martial arts in America, you really see it associated uh, with the Tang surrounding the governance of vice. And essentially, it was put to use in terms of developing street muscle. And often we would see this for the uh, overseeing gambling halls, uh, the dealing of opium and uh, prostitution, which were sort of the three big things that would uh, sort of constitute that business within Chinatowns around America. Okay, okay, okay. So there was a lot going on there. First of all, Charles said that early martial arts in America were mainly associated with tongs. What are tongs? It's kind of complicated, but a simple explanation is that when Chinese people started immigrating to the U.S. in the 1800s, tongs were social organizations, usually based around what town or province you originally came from. When America was more welcoming to Chinese laborers, these tongs helped newcomers get connected to jobs and housing. But then when the U.S. economy slowed down in the 1870s and jobs got more scarce, white Americans got all super racist against the Chinese. In 1882, the U.S. government passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the very first immigration law of its kind. That more or less stopped immigration from China into the U.S. for the better part of a century. During this time, Chinese Americans weren't just living in Chinatowns because they wanted to. They had no choice. They were forced to live in these segregated ghettos. So... Because their options for making a living in the above-ground economy were severely limited, Chinatowns became centers of vice. Gambling, opium, and prostitution were the main businesses. And here's where we get back to the Tongs. The Tongs basically became the gangs that ran these operations. The guys who knew Kung Fu, they were the Tongs enforcers. But those gangster connections aren't the only reason for the mystery surrounding early Kung Fu. The idea was that it really shouldn't be shared outside of the community. So it was meant to sort of be uh, kept within the community. And particularly as they're in America or, or other places outside of China, it was seen as sort of this leveling of the playing field, so to speak, against the hostilities that they were experiencing, racism and exclusion. People would talk about how 
U.S. military personnel on shore leave would come to Chinatown and, you know, spit on people and knock them around and things like that. You know, when the Chinese found themselves in the face of hostility, often against many people who are a lot bigger than them, say, uh, Kung Fu and their martial arts were seen as a way to, you know, fight back. There's one guy who really embodies this era of pre-Bruce Lee Kung Fu, and his name is Lao Bun. He was a Chinese immigrant who came to America illegally in the 1920s, and I'll let Charles take it from here. Lao Bun, while he's living in Los Angeles, he's in his apartment, and suddenly the building has a immigration raid with border uh, patrol agents sort of like busting into the building and he's caught really kind of just unaware in his room with numerous agents storming into the room and with nothing other than his kung fu he sort of tears through them and uh leaps out of a second story window and disappears into the streets of uh los angeles and as the story goes lao bun's um escape from the immigration agent sort of made like a minor folk hero out of him in the Chinese community that was constantly being harassed by these kind of people. And in San Francisco, one of the Tongs sort of offered him this mutually beneficial agreement, which was, we'll get you out of Los Angeles and safely relocate you to San Francisco. And in return, you'll teach uh, Kung Fu to our Tong members and their students. And Amidst sort of new Tong rivalries, we'll also put you to use as, you know, a bodyguard and a bouncer and an enforcer around the neighborhood. So Lao Bun worked as muscle for the Tongs, but as the decades went by and vice in Chinatown SF died down, Lao Bun transitioned more and more into his teacher role. Eventually, he launched a kung fu studio that was open to the public, although Chinese only, of course. And that's kind of the state of Kung Fu in America when Bruce Lee got here in 1959. It was starting to emerge from the underworld, but it was still totally off the radar. Nobody could have predicted that within about 15 years, it would be a worldwide phenomenon. mom got pregnant with him at a very lucky time. See, Bruce's dad was a famous Hong Kong actor, and he got hired for a long run of shows at Chinese theaters in San Francisco. His mom came along to help out with the productions, and Bruce was born while they were here, making him an automatic U.S. citizen. So that's how he was able to immigrate back to the Bay from Hong Kong 18 years later, even though Chinese immigration was still banned. There are just a few important things I want to point out about Bruce Lee's upbringing in Hong Kong before we get to the East Bay stuff. Don't worry, it's coming. Number one, Bruce's mom came from a very powerful and cosmopolitan Hong Kong family. His grandpa had dozens of kids, mostly with concubines. Bruce's mom was the result of an affair with one of his mistresses. According to official documents, this mistress, Bruce Lee's grandma, was 100% English, which would make Bruce Lee one-quarter Caucasian. There's some controversy around the actual percentage, 
but he was definitely mixed race. And I mention that because it's gonna cause some trouble after Bruce takes up Kung Fu. But before we get to that, here's what attracted him to martial arts in the first place. Hong Kong in the 1950s uh, was a really interesting place. It was heavily overcrowded, particularly after uh, communist victory in mainland China. And it, it had pushed a lot of people into Hong Kong. It was a very crowded place, a very crime-ridden place. There was a lot of poverty. So on one hand, Bruce has this affluent upbringing, but, you know, his walk to school, he's sort of running the gauntlet. And this eventually steers him towards the martial arts. Uh, you know, Bruce was, was kind of a small kid, and he, he proved sort of uh, magnetic to a lot of bullies. And he eventually takes uh, Wing Chun Kung Fu with Ip Man, uh, which is known as, as being very uh, results-oriented. And this is important because in Hong Kong in the 1950s, there is this really tenacious fight culture amongst many of the teenagers, almost, I mean, really to the point that they organized in sort of teen gangs. And this was associated with the different schools that the kids would take martial arts from. And I, I mean, on a daily basis, these kids were trying to match their skills against the other schools. And this completely informs Bruce Lee's worldview of the martial arts. He has a front row seat of seeing what works versus what is just utter flamboyant nonsense. Bruce got really into Kung Fu really fast. So he's training with this Wing Chun master. And fighting all the time, you know, living that wild teenager life. And things are going pretty good until Bruce's mixed race heritage becomes a problem. The prevailing notion is that as Bruce starts to excel and starts to maybe, you know, best some of his older students in practice, uh, they complain to Ipman that Bruce Lee is not 100% Chinese. And that, again, going back to that Tong code of the Chinese martial arts needing to stay within the community and not exposed to outsiders, this was seen as a deal breaker for Bruce studying with Ip Man. Bruce was still able to train on the DL with some of Ip Man's students who weren't jealous of his skills, but this episode seems to have made a real impact on him. When he returned to the U.S. in 1959, he made a reputation for himself as a kind of renegade against traditionalists. The reason why he ended up back in the States, by the way, is because the Hong Kong cops warned his parents that all his fighting was going to land him in jail. They decided to take advantage of that U.S. citizenship and quickly put Bruce on a boat back to San Francisco. He only hung around the bay for a few months, though, and... <laughs> I'm not even kidding about this next part. While he was here, Bruce Lee earned his living teaching couples how to dance the cha-cha in places like the Claremont and the Leamington Hotel in downtown Oakland. After that, it was off to Seattle to finish high school and start college. And up in Washington, instead of teaching the cha-cha, he started teaching kung fu. When he first starts teaching in Seattle, when he first starts taking on students, we see this incredibly, incredibly diverse 
uh, body of students that really is unprecedented in the world of the Chinese martial arts. Uh, his first student was a young African-American named Jesse Glover. And then just down the line from there, you just saw this incredibly uh, diverse backgrounds of, of, you know, where his students came from to the point that they would joke around and call themselves the United Nations because it was literally from one guy to the next. It was just like, you know, people of just completely different origins. And, um, you know, I think Bruce really deserves to be acknowledged for that. I mean, it really was sort of, uh, he was ahead of his time and uh, he embraced teaching beyond the Chinese community very early on. Uh, I should also point out that Bruce was one of the first people to take on females as students. Bruce had moved up to Seattle in late 1959. He then went on to attend the University of Washington. Uh, He had a very dedicated following of students. He was very popular at school. He was doing well at school. Uh, He eventually was doing really well in general. Like he found a physical location for his school. They used to practice in parks and parking garages and alleys. And he was really thriving in Seattle. And then in mid-1964, he ups and leaves Seattle to come and live in Oakland. And it really begs the question, why did he just pull up and move? And, And there's really two reasons for this, in my opinion. The first is that the Bay Area was a hotspot for what was happening in the world of the martial arts. So for Bruce Lee, who is just 24-7 martial arts at this point in his life, this was the place to be. He wanted to be close to the action. And it's a testament to how robust the martial arts culture was here in its earliest days that Bruce Lee sort of ups and leaves Seattle to come here. The other thing is that Bruce Lee finds a, a very close collaborator here in Oakland named James Lee. Uh, there's no relation. Uh, in fact, James Lee is about twice his age. Uh, he is a working class family man. Uh, he's an Oakland native. And James Lee is this sort of tough as nails, real blue collar Oakland guy who grew up going to Oakland Tech. He wrestled in high school. He was a gymnast. He broke weightlifting records at the local YMCA. He gravitates to the early bodybuilding culture that's happening here surrounding Jack LaLanne and uh, other people in his orbit. And most notably is he develops a ferocious reputation as a real deal street fighter on the streets of Oakland. In about 1962, Oakland basically recruits Bruce Lee to come back to the Bay Area. Okay, so that's the overview, but what does it mean? Well, remember earlier when I said that Bruce Lee made a reputation for himself as a renegade against traditionalists? In the early 1960s, Kung Fu schools were still really locked into the old way of doing things. Mixing different styles, for example, was a big no-no. At this point, Chinese immigration had been mostly blocked for almost a century. So without infusions of new martial arts styles, things had gotten kind of stagnant. In Bruce Lee's public demonstrations around this time, 
he's starting to go around and basically diss the traditional teaching methods. And what made the insults even worse, Bruce was still only in his early 20s. Bruce considered, you know, uh, a lot of the schools like that they were just cranking out robots, you know, like this is how you do the punch. And then this is how, you know, like there was a very fixed way of doing things. Bruce sort of took this wide open, expansive approach that there, there were no parameters. I, I suppose it's very much sort of a 60s era ideal. And he was just very ahead of the curve and picking up on it. This really pissed a lot of people off. But in Oakland, there was a group of serious martial arts practitioners who were like, yeah, yeah, we're on the same page as Bruce. And a lot of these guys were former servicemen who had previously been stationed in Hawaii, which was probably the first place in the world to have a real melting pot culture of martial arts styles because of all the immigrants who moved there from all over Asia. One of those guys was James Lee, the badass blue-collar street fighter guy that Charles mentioned a minute ago. But Bruce Lee didn't move all the way back to Oakland just because James Lee agreed with him. James Lee was a visionary, one of the true unsung pioneers of MMA, and that's what attracted Bruce. James Lee is publishing his own martial arts books. He is designing and building his own martial arts equipment, and he's running a very modern training environment out of his garage in East Oakland. What Bruce picks up on is that James Lee is really already enacting the sort of martial arts future that he is just beginning to envision. Oh, one other crazy fact. You probably think the term Kung Fu is from China, right? Nope. James Lee, an Oakland native, invented the term Kung Fu. Before he came along, it was known as Gung Fu or Gong Fu. But when James released one of the very first English language books about Kung Fu, he thought it sounded better with a K than a G, so he changed the name and it stuck. Anyway, when Bruce moved back to Oakland, it sparked the beginning of something huge. What begins to happen is they sort of have these like epic think tank sessions on a regular basis where, um, you know, they'll find them themselves in someone's living room, staying up till, you know, the very early morning hours, just going around the room, like talking about their point of view, talking about something they've learned and everyone starts comparing notes. It's sort of this like unique martial arts laboratory that starts to develop where Bruce is in with this older class of experienced people who regard him as an equal and begin to exchange ideas with him. The martial arts were originally really sort of uh, clan-based and family-based. So, you know, there would be, say, a certain town and, and the certain clan or family, they would fight a certain way. Uh, there wasn't a name for it. It wasn't called this style or that. It was just the family's style of fighting. Around the, the start of the 1900s, what you saw 
was this, and this is so fascinating, is you saw basically these sort of marketing schemes where they said, well, it's not really interesting if we just call this by our family name. It's much more interesting if we call it Tiger Style or Mantis. Charles is quick to point out that not all of these origin stories are bogus, but there's usually a lot of mythology surrounding places like the Shaolin Temple, for example. And the real history often doesn't line up with the folklore. This tradition of infusing martial arts with an almost magical aura to get people excited was definitely exported to the U.S. when things eventually started catching on here. That's one of the things that is particularly sold to the Western world when when the martial arts um, first really start to get popular here around the 1960s is it's seen as, you know, secret fighting arts. So you're not developing yourself as a fighter because you're doing tons of push-ups and you're working the heavy bag every day. You know a secret trick, a secret strategy that's going to give you, you know, a shortcut over on the bullies. And I think that a lot of people were sold this as it was sort of packaged with sort of Eastern sort of exoticism. Bruce Lee was highly critical of all this. Bruce Lee called his approach to martial arts scientific street fighting, and it was firmly rooted in reality. You stick with what works and throw everything else out. No need for flamboyant moves or fancy formalities or even uniforms. So... Remember how I said earlier that Bruce was pissing a lot of people off? You know, going around and giving these demonstrations where he dissed old masters and made fun of other styles, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, there was some bad blood brewing between the old school Chinatown San Francisco scene and Bruce and his Oakland crew. And in 1964, it came to a boil. Here's what happened. Bruce got hired to be part of a tour that a famous Hong Kong actress was doing on the West Coast. She would perform songs, her and Bruce would dance the cha-cha, and in between sets, Bruce would take the stage to do his kung fu demonstrations. When this tour hit San Francisco, there was only one question on everyone's mind. Did Bruce Lee dare to get up in the heart of Chinatown and say the same things? (laughs) What do you think? As he always did, you know, he grabbed a a down moment in the performance to give a a demonstration. Again, Bruce really lets it fly. Um, Not only is he sort of up there uh, saying how much better his approach is, but he airs a criticism very much aimed at the old guard in Chinatown, uh, in which he says, these old tigers have no teeth. Oh, no, he didn't. Oh, yes, he did. For a young guy from out of town to be standing in the heart of Chinatown and aiming that sort of criticism at these very well-respected members of the community, it it was really sort of the, the last straw. So after that performance, which also, I should point out, included a demonstration that went wildly off the rails for Bruce, uh, in which he's heckled by the crowd... Uh, You know, people are throwing cigarette butts on stage. Uh, A a fight almost breaks out on stage. 
uh, Bruce steps to sign off by saying, any of my Chinatown brothers who want to try out my Wing Chun are welcome to come find me at my school in Oakland. I know it's a cliche, but this is literally the most appropriate time to say it. Mic drop. So the question was then, who was going to step up and challenge Bruce Lee? Here we are 50 years later. I could tell you that this still is a contentious topic. There are still people arguing about this. There are still people upset about this. Okay, fight fans. In this corner, we have the challenger, Wong Jack Man. He was the same age as Bruce, 23, and he was also raised in Hong Kong. But that's where the similarities end. Wong Jackman studied Northern Shaolin. Bruce studied a Southern style of Shaolin Kung Fu, whereas Wong Jackman's style was expansive and acrobatic. Bruce Lee's style was compact and economical, uh, whereas Wong Jackman was sort of this quiet and mild-mannered person. Bruce Lee was known to be very boisterous and outwardly charismatic and, and at times brash. So there's this sort of yin-yang dynamic that exists between the two, which, which I just think at the end of the day is so fascinating. It's, it's like, uh, you know, their, their fates were sort of intertwined in a way because ultimately the fight will very much impact the rest of their lives. Let's get ready to rumble! Oh, well, actually, not, not quite yet. Here, have a little more context first. The prevailing storyline, which has existed for a very long time, says that Chinatown was upset with Bruce Lee teaching non-Chinese students, which therefore put him in violation of that long-held Tong code of keeping it within the community, and they essentially sent Wong Jackman over there in an enforcer role to tell Bruce to stop doing that. This is really upsetting to a lot of Wong Jackman's students who studied with him over the years. They equate it to being a false narrative. And um, I, I think they're correct. But, but I want to point out that there's nuance to it. That code was a real thing. Bruce Lee's classes were indeed more diverse than what anyone had ever seen. Was that fight over that in particular? I don't think so. And I think there's ample evidence that the code was really in its kind of final throes by that time. By 1964, there was a small handful of non-Chinese people studying Kung Fu in Chinatown. So the theory that this was the main beef with Bruce doesn't really seem that tight. So what was the real reason? It was that whole thing about Bruce Lee dissing everybody in San Francisco. Duh. So in late 1964, Wong Jackman piles into a car with a bunch of other guys, and they drive east across the Bay Bridge to go to Bruce's new school uh, on Broadway along Auto Row in Oakland. What's interesting is in the backseat of the car are a bunch of sort of like hanger-on, gossipy, troublemaker types who go over there basically to see the thing so that they can run back to Chinatown and, you know, carry on and gossip about it. And, and I think that puts the whole fight into a very particular context because when they arrive there, not only do you have a rival martial artist coming into someone's studio to challenge them to a fight, 
but he shows up with a bunch of like jerks that are there to cause trouble. It, it, it doesn't really make for a good context for what's going down. It, it really is, you know, from Bruce's point of view, um, an affront to, to him and his school. I should also point out that his wife is present, who is eight months pregnant at the time. And, uh, you know, to roll into someone's school and challenge them under those circumstances is seen as sort of, you know, a major affront to Bruce and his ego and, and his school. And he wasn't shy about letting them know that he wasn't very happy about them uh, showing up in the yeah. situation they kind of were bringing to his his front door either, right? Yeah, it, it escalates quickly. And the idea is that I, Bruce is almost like consumed with rage at the very prospect of the entire thing. And that his the fight, when the fight does eventually take place he is uh sort of off his game because he's so sort of consumed by anger by it all he sort of snaps at the very beginning right yeah bruce lets them know that he he's not going for any rules or anything like that is the idea is that you came into my studio to challenge me uh let's go there are no rules okay now let's really get ready to rumble as much as we all want this to be sort of an epic, cinematic kung fu showdown, the reality was it was probably a very wild sort of sloppy brawl. The fight itself, Bruce lands the opening blow. Wong Jackman did respond with a blow that narrowly uh, missed uh, Bruce's face, came down sort of like scratched him across the neck. And then uh, Bruce pressed in hard on him. Now, one of the stories is that, that Wong Jackman ran away from Bruce. I don't, didn't really get it as much as that as I did that, you know, Wong Jackman's style is based around like long range attacks, which doesn't work if someone's on top of you. So uh, he needed space. Uh, and he needed to get that space. And Bruce, on the other hand, it was all about infighting and being as close as possible. And again, this is what's so interesting about the matchup. As the fight spills around the room with Wong Jackman trying to get that space and, and deflect you know, Bruce's uh, advance, Wong Jackman stumbles over a small step and in an instant, Bruce Lee is on top of him, just sort of pounding him while he's on the ground, asking him if he yields. And uh, at, at that point, the fight was over. There was, you know, Wong Jackman, you know, isn't going to uh, rebound from that position. And that's it. It was very fast, uh, very furious. The fight was a victory for Bruce Lee, but it wasn't the overwhelming first round knockout type win he was looking for. It probably lasted around seven minutes. Gary Kaganan heard a lot about this fight in later years when he was training with James Lee. Here's why Bruce wasn't satisfied with the outcome. Bruce felt that the fight shouldn't have lasted as long as it did. Bruce um, was winded after the fight. He felt that the techniques that he was using um, were ineffective in, in having to chase the guy that was running, literally running from him and, and whatnot. So he thought the fight should have ended a lot quicker. And so it was kind of uh, an epiphany for him as far as uh, his shortcomings. The traditional stuff that he had learned wasn't effective in this particular situation. So that's how this whole thing evolved in terms of his change in philosophy uh, as far as combat was concerned. He needed to be more realistic. 
so that you weren't training to fight in like a martial arts tournament where you know you're scoring points and the referee's calling time and he's he's talking about fighting out on the street and, and ending things quickly. Even though this fight wasn't the most monumental in terms of physical combat, here's why it's still considered an event that would change the course of martial arts forever. This is a pivotal moment in, in Bruce Lee's evolution as a martial artist. Uh, it's widely acknowledged that this is sort of the catalyst for Bruce to start tangibly constructing uh, his own martial arts approach, Jeet Kune Do. So what is Jeet Kune Do, and why was it so revolutionary? First of all, Bruce was clear that it wasn't meant to be a new style. It was a different way of interacting with the world. Sorry, if that sounds kind of vague, uh, Gary does a good job of explaining what it meant to him. It's a way of thinking, absolutely, um, of uh, um, emptying that teacup, as, as they would put it, and uh, liberating yourself from uh, the, the traditionalism and the rigors of, of traditional martial arts where it had to be done one way. The philosophy was that you can't cookie-cut a martial artist. You can't teach everybody the same thing and expect the same product uh, or the same development out of everybody. You know, he wanted you to find yourself in martial arts. You know, he would teach, teach you these principles uh, in JKD, but it was up to you to develop your own sense of self-expression. Bruce Lee only lived in Oakland for another year or so after the big fight, but that's not where this episode ends. I want to share Gary Kaganan's story because it really epitomizes how fast things changed once Bruce Lee made an impact in the East Bay and in the rest of the world. Gary lives in Jack London Square now, but he's originally from the Deep East. Yeah, I grew up here, uh, born and raised in Oakland, between 86th and 87th Avenue, yeah, just off of East 14th. And like many kids who grew up in the 1960s, there was a very specific moment when martial arts popped up on his radar. When the Green Hornet came out with Bruce Lee. The Green Hornet was a TV show that only ran for one season, but it was mainstream America's introduction to Bruce Lee. He played a superhero sidekick, but more importantly, he got to show off his moves on the national airwaves. Anyway, the show got Gary interested, but it wasn't until this happened that he took the next step. My entrance into the martial arts was a, a result of uh, bullying. I was assaulted in junior high school. I was walking to a classroom, and this guy comes out of nowhere and just blasts me. And um, I... He knocked the wind out of me. I thought I was going to die. I couldn't even breathe. Then he looks at me and he says, I'm not through with you yet. I'll see you after school. At the end of the day, when that last bell rang for us to, to be dismissed from school, I ran all the way home. And so I, I, I get home and, um, and I'm thankful. Oh, my God, I, you know, I dodged a bullet, right? You know. But then I thought about it and I hated the fact that I ran home and that I was afraid of someone. And I resolved from that point on that I would never be afraid of anybody again. I would learn 
martial arts or something to, to be able to defend myself. If this had been a few years earlier, Gary wouldn't have had many options. Remember this? The schools in San Francisco, the Kung Fu schools, were pretty, pretty much closed-door type things. You know, they only catered to, uh, to Chinese. And like I said earlier, Gary is Filipino-American, not Chinese. At first, Gary didn't have enough cash for real classes, so he started ordering martial arts books. And yes, one of his earliest selections was one of the books that James Lee put out. But pretty soon, Gary was able to afford real classes. Then, everything changed when he met this guy in high school who was actually a student of James Lee, or Jimmy, as Gary calls him. This classmate trained Gary for a bit himself, but then he was like, if you really want to learn, you've got to go straight to Jimmy and see if he'll take you. So he told me where it was, and back then, Jimmy's school, or Bruce's school, which was run by Jimmy, it was non-commercial. It never has been commercial. So you kind of had to know someone to find out where it even was. And so he told me where it was, and I jumped in my mom's car and drove over there. Was that the school on, in the Monticello? On, on Monticello. Monticello. Mm-hmm. So it was like basically in a garage, right? It was in a garage. Long story short, James Lee accepts him. And this is how Gary not only got to train with one of Bruce's closest collaborators, but also how he got to know his idol. You see, Bruce would still come back to the school whenever he was in Oakland. It was a very magical time in in the martial arts, especially um, to be training in one of three schools that, that Bruce had. According to Gary, this was a real turning point in his life. Before, racist bullies were known for picking on Asian guys at his high school, but after him and some of his friends started getting confident with their skills, that problem disappeared. After we all started training in martial arts, things turned around. Man, we never went around looking for fights, but we never backed down after that either. I would imagine that bullies would get the message pretty quick. Very not, quick. Not to pick on Yeah. Them. yeah. They got the message very quick, especially if we threw a couple of kicks at them and things of that nature, they, they would just back off. Sadly, the years that Gary trained with James Lee in the late 60s and early 70s were the last years of James's life. But even though he was getting older, James Lee never let go of his roots as a bare-knuckle Oakland street fighter, as this story proves. There was a, uh, another kung fu master in Oakland who found out that his son was training with Jimmy. And uh, his son happened to be a very good friend of mine. And so this Kung Fu master decides that he's going to go visit Jimmy. I don't know what his idea was at, at the time, but they wound up, they wound up doing this thing called Chi Sao. It's, it's a sticky hand uh, exercise um, where you kind of play with each other. You know, it's, um, and uh, anyway, things kind of got out of hand, and, and, and Jimmy was like, screw this sticky hand stuff. This traditional classic crap and he just started blasting this guy and he knocked he knocked him out of the garage jimmy was really proud of the fact that at his age he was still able to to kick some butt at the beginning of this episode I asked why Bruce Lee is so inspirational to so many different kinds of people. 
across so many generations. It's not necessarily his fighting, but his way of living that holds a big part of the answer. One of the, the most notable aspects of his philosophy is this notion of sort of lifelong evolution and um, the idea that you need to constantly evolve. And what's interesting about that is it's something that, like a lot of his philosophy, it applies well beyond the martial arts. And it, it's something that's, that's really resonating with people today. But, you know, the fighting was pretty badass, too. Thank you so much for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Big shout out to Gary Kaganen and Charles Russo. I highly recommend Charles's book, Striking Distance. There's a ton of great Bay Area history in that book that we did not cover in this episode. I also recommend the Bruce Lee podcast, which is hosted by Bruce's daughter, Shannon. The interview with East Bay comedian Kamau Bell is particularly awesome. Also, thanks to Robbie Dempster over at Downtown Subaru for letting me take some pictures of their Bruce Lee memorabilia, and Gene Anderson, who brightens my days by seemingly knowing every answer to every question asked in the Oakland History Facebook group. Oh, also the Temescal branch of the Oakland Library, which held the event where I first met Charles Russo. And one more, the East Bay Express, especially Nick Miller and Darwin Bond Graham. The Express let me write a bunch of articles for their local history issue. If you're interested, you can find those online. You can follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and I highly recommend doing so because there are a bunch of cool photos I'll be posting related to this episode. There are links to all those social media pages at eastbayyesterday.com. And I hate to beg, but if you like this show, please spread the word. Every time I see somebody give East Bay Yesterday some love on social media, it truly warms my heart. Big thanks to the folks who are already doing this. Music for this episode was provided by Broke for Free, Low Ka Ping, Chan Wai Fat, and Havan Lara Lemmy. The theme song music came from Anatech. And one more thing. Look, I know there are some Bruce Lee murals around town, but I really think we need something more permanent to recognize this global icon. Come on, Oakland. What do you say? There are statues, like full-size statues of Bruce Lee on four different continents. You know, I, I think that's a testament to just, you know, how sort of far-reaching his influence is. And, um, you know, I don't know what it is in particular, but I, I think the Bay Area should sort of find a way to sort of acknowledge that legacy.